Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, excited to welcome everybody back to another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And today I have a very special guest uh, with us. Doug Fisher is here uh, to share a little bit about uh, remote learning, some hybrid learning uh, practices, uh, and really just to delve into that distance learning playbook work and share that with our audience here. And so thanks, Doug, for being on the pod. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to join you. That's great. Yeah, and uh, for those of you who don't know Doug Fisher, uh, he is a professor of educational leadership at San Diego State University, a teacher leader at Health Sciences High and Middle College. Uh, I want to just give some context here, but Doug really needs no introduction. That being said, the distance learning playbook is something that across our ESU network, we're excited to delve into that through our Lunch Bunch initiative. And this is going to be a podcast to really kickstart our network's exploration of that text and how it can maybe help us grow in our support of educators across the state in Nebraska. And so I want to know a little bit more about the backstory. Doug, it has been, I think, six months almost to the day right now from when we, at least in Nebraska, went to remote learning. And you, along with uh, Nancy Fry and John Hattie, were able to put together this book and start to lead in such a short window of time. And so can you give us the context for how this all came about? Sure. Great question. So we closed schools on March 13th here in San Diego. And uh, my sister is an intensive care, critical care nurse. And so I was telling her, oh, we're going to be out a couple weeks and we have spring break and everything will be good by then and we'll go back. She said to me, no, you're not. You're not going back this year. And I thought she meant the school year. Yeah. And she said, I mean, this is like, I think March 18th. She said, you're not going back in 2020. It's not going to happen. And so that was like a wake up call for me. Like she really believes this and she's part of a team and they really believe this. And so we connected with 74 teachers uh, from Australia, Hawaii, Alaska, California, and Texas. And these people like join us, come learn with us, be part of it. And so we started seeing these awesome lessons emerge and we started writing about it. And we were really thinking about a book around coming back, having learned all of this stuff from distance learning, but it wasn't getting any better. And so it ended up being, how do you do distance learning? <clears throat> but that wasn't the original plan. The original plan was, we're all going to come back. And as John Hattie likes to say, we're going to come back better than we were. But it, that, so we pivoted on that and we said, okay, we're going to write this, do it. Corwin has been amazing. They turned this around in record time it's usually about four months to get a book from submission out to print they did it in three weeks this has wow. never happened i've never seen it before because teachers were so they just needed to have conversations about what's possible so we got all this information out we started doing all these workshops we had a book club you know we we offered all these free book clubs and people are talking to us it's just been really really cool uh, we keep updating the information in there because we keep learning so much so quickly and honestly, I wouldn't have thought that we would start this school year from a distance. I really thought three weeks, four weeks, we'll be all back to normal, whatever that was. And now, I mean, our district has said, don't even look for school until 2021 physically. So who knows what the future holds, but <laughs> there's some distance learning and there's going to be some distance learning for us until there's a cure. I think there's going to be schools that go back A, B schedules, morning, afternoon, one day a week. Some schools will go back and then there'll be an outbreak and they'll close again. I mean, just this, this is going to be our reality for the foreseeable future. 
Yeah. And, you know, in the midst of your, your comments there too, a number of things kind of stood out to me. And one, the, the need for this, I think that teachers, we want them to feel confident. We want them to feel comfortable uh, in regardless of, of the setting. And, and it's not comfortable and, and they're not confident at this time. And so this work is incredibly important in bringing that. Uh, and I think there's a overlap with that in teacher credibility, because when you feel confident and comfortable, you're able to stand and deliver and, and lead in a classroom. And so that's critical. Uh, and the second piece of this is as you were talking, you were going through some of those scenarios and I know across Nebraska right now, we have everything from schools that are 100% in school and have been and we have some in hybrid like my own children have been going two days a week. We have some that are entirely remote. And so the practices are so uniquely different or the strategies are different based upon the uh, reality of those respective circumstances. And so this has got to make it a little bit tough for you guys. Do you feel that I guess in, in trying to talk about this work because of the the different uh, ways in which it can play out that it's hard to maybe support teachers with that or, or has that not really been the case? So there's a lot of stress and I think a lot of it comes from the unknown that we're used to being able to predict here's the 180 days of school there are holiday breaks and there are semesters or whatever we're used to that all of that's you know we're saying well you might go back in two weeks you might get kicked out of school in two weeks it's just the how do we know how do we predict? How do we plan? That's causing a lot of the anxiety. Um, and I think uh, some of the unknowns around technology are causing people stress. And I, I just want to say, approach it from some confidence. You did not forget how to be a teacher. Yes, we need to mobilize some technology tools. Yes, it's awkward teaching from your kitchen or whatever. We didn't sign up for that. And some of you have kids one day a week or two days a week, and the others is a remote learning. Some are fully remote. Some are temporarily at physical school, doing everything they can with masks and spacing. It's so different. And you talk district to district to district, and it's so different. And that's unsettling. So we only know what we can do right now. And so we say, okay, what's the best learning we can do right now for students, given what we have? What's the best thing I can do right now? And I, I just, I hope that we can, we can hold on to this idea. We know how to teach. We know how to assess. We know how to plan lessons. And we just need a little help transitioning them. And I think there's been some conversation like distance learning has to, we throw everything out that we've ever learned. No, you, there are moves that we can make from a distance, from a hybrid, from blended, that we can, that we can rely on what we've learned. And yes, there's some differences. Like if you want kids to talk to each other in a breakout room, we're finding there, there are three really important things about breakout rooms. They need to be short. Like I'm saying 10 minutes or less for even for adolescents. They need to be very clear on the task in the breakout room and they need to have some product they come back to the main room with so the teacher knows what they did. When those three conditions are present and they make some sense for physical school, but I've seen groups that are 20 and 30 minutes long in physical school. That just doesn't work as well in a breakout room where the teacher's not there. <clears throat> so we have to think about what do we know how to do and how do we bring it into this environment? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It seems like in my, what work I've done with teachers too, it's about saying, okay, what, what are the fundamental pieces of instruction? And let's build that as the foundation upon which we start to leverage technology and these new ways of implementing things designed for engagement, designed for think, pair, share. I, and, and, and that's where that piece kind of stacks upon that foundation once that's in the backpack and brought over. <laughs> and I really like what you said there too, yep. with regards to those think, pair, share opportunities. Uh, I, I'm 
particularly interested with my own kids in, in seeing them at home with the hybrid where can they think pair share with someone who's live at school? Uh, because yeah. I, I really had some angst about putting students into a uh, Zoom room by themselves or, you know, like a breakout room by themselves. But I think if, if we can, can make ways for them to be with someone who's actually there live, it's a little bit better window for the teacher too. So uh, just to add to those fantastic ideas. And, and I think that just naturally gets to this conversation about engagement. Um, and so let's go there for a little bit, right? What are some uh, engagement strategies? That seems to be a really big need right now uh, as the same Zoom, the same Google Meet day after day for, in some cases, five or six hours a day is tedious. Uh, and so how do we, how do we make it a little more lively for our learners? Awesome. So I think, um, so John Hattie introduced us to this model of engagement that serves a continuum and the highest level is when students drive their own learning. So they set goals, they seek feedback from other people, they monitor their progress, they self-assess. And so as I started thinking about that, how do we create tasks that regularly move students into the driving position? And when they drive their own learning, they engage. We know that. And so how do we create tasks that have more choices in them, where students are having to select from a range of goals, where they're saying, wow, if I learn this, who do I have to teach it to? Who do I have to get feedback from? That's the kind of task that I think we need to be creating. This is a window of opportunity to kind of change over the, the tasks that we give. Everyone in class doesn't have to be doing the same task as everybody else. We can have a lot more choices. We can have a lot more ways of demonstrating. The other day, so a little bit on assessment for this. The other day, a teacher was there, they were working on a history lesson. And at the end of the lesson, the teacher said, we're gonna use a no show chart, K-N-O-W-S-H-O-W, no show chart. After the end of the lesson, list all the things you now know and show me how you could show me. How do you know? What could you show me? You can do it any way you want. Any way you can show me these things you've learned that you now know. It was really cool to see all of the different students. There were commonalities in the no column and not so many commonalities in the show column. They had all these creative ways of saying, this is how I'm gonna show my teacher that I know this. If we start opening up that a little bit, letting students say, Here's how I can show you I learned it. Or here's how I'm going to teach it to someone else. Or here's how I'm going to get feedback from other people. Or here's how I'm going to monitor my own progress. If we can move to that, then we'll see, I believe, better engagement. There's research going back like 10 or 15 years about younger kids reading to stuffed animals and pets. And those things don't judge you and they build confidence and fluency. And so we had a teacher say to the parents, I would love it if the kids could read to this pet or stuffed animal or whatever. And once a week, could you collect a short video clip of that child reading out loud? And I'll use that as my progress monitoring so I don't spend any class time in assessment. And I, I just think that there's so many ways to be creative about engagement. Yeah, I, that's something that I'm excited as the semester progresses because as people continue to function in this space more and more and push and push <laughs> with regards to these new practices, I do think we're going to see some really innovative things come out of the just need. You know, I think that's where innovation lies typically is when there are limitations placed that also force you out of your comfort zone. And so that's, uh, that's really exciting to see what comes up next with that. Are there any others that you would? Because I mean, we can, I'd love to exhaust this engagement topic here, right? While I have you <laughs> uh, to chat yeah. with. So, I'm, I, so what I saw in a science class <clears throat> was the teacher did a pickup party and the kids came by and picked up their, their supplies for her class. 
Uh, and you know, they pulled in the trunk open, drop it off. And there was like 10 or 15 of her students that didn't do it and they delivered them. So they all had things. And yesterday she did a virtual simulation. And so they did it on the computer first. And so they did their first dissection in her biology class virtually. And they would go to breakout rooms and she would only give them certain supplies in the breakout room before that. And so I just watched students who were so into this because only bits of it got released at a time. And they know that very soon they will be dissecting some, there's like five different things they can choose from to dissect in their groups and they will actually do it in their homes. Some of them are, I'm not going to do this. I'm only doing virtual. Others, I can't wait to get my shark fin or whatever it's going to be that they're doing. Um, and this teacher said, I can still do this from a distance, but all the learning we need to do, it's not just a fun dissection thing, right? It's, there's a bunch of learning that goes in and there's all these uh, student directed and why you're choosing this and what do you want to see and what body systems are you looking at and, and how do you know what you're looking at and how, do, how are things organized? And all that learning that can happen in advance of, okay, this is super cool task for these high schoolers in biology. Gosh, a couple of things in that. One, I'm just envisioning what it would be like to just pull up and, and pick up a dead cat. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, whoa, that's kind of right. its own, own yeah. uh, engagement piece in and of itself. Uh, yeah. But uh, to extend that conversation too, and to just thinking about how important it is to, to be thoughtful through the different steps of your lesson and to be clear yes. about what step you're on and to be clear about the expectation for the next step. Because as you noted there, it's a uh, learning is a progression, you know, and you, and you have to have that scaffolding and it's tough sometimes. I think in the spring we struggled a little bit with that because we didn't know timeframes and um, we hadn't really figured out how to kind of leverage all this technology to build in those necessary steps. But again, that once that foundation can kind of get into place, you can do those more creative things like this. And so that's a really cool example of uh, science. That's a really cool example of something that you, needs materials, which I know has been a challenge for, let's say your family consumer sciences type of courses where they need those pieces. So yeah, for those teachers that have students in front of them, for those teachers that also at the same time maybe have half their class in the palm of their hand on a laptop or iPad, uh, are there any engagement strategies specific to helping uh, in that instructional time in particular, I think? Yeah. So I think the reality is when you're teaching some kids physically and some kids via distance, you're running two classrooms. <clears throat> and so it is double work. And I recognize there are reasons for that. At this point, my preference would be there were distance learning teachers and physical, but that's not always the case. So I think you have to figure out how to involve the kids at home in the conversations in class. And I think we have to talk about what good decisions we can make for asynchronous learning versus synchronous learning. And how do we get better and better at that distinction? What's better asynchronous and what's better synchronous? By and large, I think practice and things we call demonstrating, so think alouds, direct instruction, those things are better asynchronous. And when we have kids in a synchronous, whether it's live synchronous or distance synchronous, we prove their interaction, they're talking, they're making sense of things, um, things like coaching and facilitating. <clears throat> so in that situation, facilitate a class discussion on a topic with the kids here and the kids there, it's probably gonna be more effective than trying to do something like uh, direct instruction or a think aloud because the think aloud you can easily do in distributed distance asynchronous learning. I think that there are, there are choices that teachers make around how to engage in conversation, interaction, 
And as you were saying earlier, we can certainly do breakout groups with kids who are some in physical school and some not in physical school. So I'm seeing that as one of the potentials. So it increases interaction. So you have two people who are at home learning, two people are at school learning who are now in a group together. And so it's just like for kids in a classroom, the noise volume, I see this work. And so I tend to say, if we can privilege more academic language interaction when we are synchronous with kids, whatever format of synchronous we have, we're probably gonna get better learning. The, some evidence, John Hattie talks about this a lot, that in the average classroom, the teacher talks about 80% of the minutes. And if we can get that down to about 50%, learning goes up. What we don't want to replicate in distance learning is 80% or 90% or 100% teacher talk. We have to figure out how to set up experiences where students are act, interacting with each other. One of the mind frames of visible learning is I engage in as much dialogue as monologue. And so we're trying to balance that student to student interaction, class discussions, small group collaborative learning. How can we mobilize all of those? And so if you have a blended class, some physically with you and some remotely learning, if we can get some of those regular classroom conversations, whole class partners, uh, we can do it through chat, we can do it through voice. There's all kinds of ways if we can get that language going. We're probably going to see better learning. Yeah, and you know one of the hurdles that I've noticed with that too is just getting a microphone so that students when they speak in class that the people who are at home can hear. <laughs> and Because if they can't, then, well, well, people at home can't hear, so we just won't do it. Well, right. you don't want to lose that, right? Or maybe it becomes also make sure that the students at school uh, can hear their counterparts at home contributing. Right. Uh, and, and is that a speaker maybe that we need to make sure that those voices are accessible? And uh, I think sometimes we run into hurdles and a simple fix like that, not to call a microphone a simple piece, but I mean, it's something that could substantially enhance yeah. into that 50-80 split that you're talking about. Right, and if we can, anything we can do to make sure that there's a good dose of student to student language, talking, interacting, agreeing, disagreeing. Where'd you find that? How did you know that? I agree with you. I disagree with you. If we can get those kinds of things moving in a classroom, I'm way less worried about their learning outcomes. Because that's where engagement's going to stem from is because they're learning from their peers and, uh, and because they're actually feeling active in the process, right? Like, and, and so there's a, uh, there's that piece as well. I, I might circle back around to this because I'm starting to think about it a little bit more. When you talk about goal setting, I do think that goals, it's such a broad term. I think that you could have behavior goals. I think you could have to-do lists. When you see like playlists being utilized, for example, goals. Uh, I think there are goals with regards to like skills that you're trying to show a proficiency in. And so how do you think through those different aspirations and is there a, a value hierarchy in those? I, I'm, I'm just curious to maybe explore that as a topic. Sure. So I think there are some dispositions we want from students. We call them assessment capable learners. Uh, the self, you know, the cognitive regulation things like knowing where you are in your learning journey, accepting challenge, seeking out feedback. Those are the high level dispositions. There's also knowledge that we should be learning in school. And then there are processes that we should be learning. So knowing something and then how to use that knowledge and then developing a, a, an eventual habit of mind or mind frame, I think is there are different levels. In a lesson, there might be more around content knowledge. There might be some process knowledge. And over time, 
some of these mind frames that we want to develop with students? Do you seek out feedback? Are you selecting your own tools for learning from the choices I've given you? That's the kind of mind frames we're trying to build with students long term. So yes, there are levels, I think. And I think if we drill down only to the behaviors at the lowest level, we miss the opportunity to develop some of the more process-oriented things and mind frames, habits that we want to develop longer term. Yeah, and I think when you start to think across those goals, it provides an opportunity to touch upon a number of things we've said so far, right? If we're, if you have choice in the product that you're creating, there's a process that goes into that, uh, your own creative process. And so there are certainly goals that can be stem from that conversation. Or if you're at home and you're trying to you know, stay engaged. <laughs> so that could be everything from where you're located to do you have you know, are you upright even in your seat behavior goals? And, and I think that all of these different avenues uh, by having goals also can, you can provide some clarity in terms of your expectation or what makes for an effective learner in those situations. And by learning that, it, it's just going to help. Exactly. Totally agree. And we have social goals for students. We have academic goals for students. <clears throat> we have mind frame goals. And are we transparent in that? Do we let them know what success looks like? What does it mean to have learned something? What does it mean to develop this habit of uh, how are you studying, for example? How are you learning, for example? How are you recognizing that challenge and struggle are good? It's, it's, it's okay not to know stuff up front. And so there's all those levels of what we what school is supposed to provide. And I think in distance learning, we don't want to go to the place where it's only a set of skills as a stopgap because we think eventually someday we're all going to be back physically and then we'll recover everything else. Social development is still important. Emotional learning is still important. Developing habits of mind is still important. And we can develop those from a distance. You know, we don't have to limit it to content knowledge. Yeah, I've been really grateful with my own children too, and that they do two days of at school. They do every Wednesday is a SEL day. And so they actually get like an hour and a half to go specifically to the thing you're talking about there, right? Like have those opportunities. Uh, and then they clean the school before everything sort of switches to that B group uh, where they go remote for the end of the week. And so I, I do think there's a true value to that being incorporated in some way, shape or form uh, with some, some intentionality. Yeah. Uh, and, and with that too, I think another kind of topic worth considering at this time, because I think it's going to be more and more pressing as educators get into their school year is what are we going to do about summatives? Because if I can, uh, even if my computer is locked down and I'm required to stay on a specific screen, that's not going to keep Alexa from working or my phone or my iPad. Right. And so I know a number of teachers are really concerned with regards to, Hey, what are we going to do when we can't prevent students from cheating by using these other devices. And so um, any ideas for how we might think about summative assessing? Awesome. I think this is gonna be the four week or five week into the school year, big crisis. Yep. <clears throat> Most school districts in the spring had a hold harmless. Your grade couldn't get worse than it already was. That was very common in the US in the spring. But now in the fall, we're in, in new learning, additional learning and People are all excited, we're opening classes, we're developing relationships, we're teaching, we're doing great lessons, doing formative checks for understanding, and then all of a sudden we're gonna to get to the summatives and your ears are gonna and write to the principal, so-and-so is cheating. They're Googling the answers, all kinds of stuff. The realization now is that everything is open book. That's where we have to be. 
you cannot really lock things down. I mean, we have teachers who say, I want your camera on. I want to see your paper. Well, if you have a camera pointed to the paper, they can talk to the HomePod or Alexa and get answers. So, I mean, it's open book. So for example, we started seeing teachers have kids retell. Retellings have been around for a long time. So on Flipgrid, retell what you know. And you can look in their eyes and you can see the flow of their ideas. And if they're pausing to ask Alexa or Siri something, it's obvious. But just say it in your own words. <clears throat> I had a teacher. So some of the schools here in San Diego opened on August 4th. That's our, some of our schools in the South County did. And the teacher showed me a lesson, an assessment, summative assessment. And she said, this was chemistry. I still want you to take a multiple choice test because I do think you should have familiarity with that genre because you're going to take a driver's test and a food handler's test and a test to get into college. So I want you to take a multiple choice test, but I'm not going to grade the multiple choice test. What I am going to grade is the 500 word at the end explanation of everything that you learned that was not in the multiple choice test. And if you say something in the, in, the, in the 500 words that's on the multiple choice test, I'm not giving you credit for that. And so the kids had to go through the multiple choice test and answer, but they had to write 500 words of all the things that were not on the multiple choice test that they learned. And she told me she got the best authentic answers on the multiple choice test because they didn't bother to go look it up. They just answered so she could see what actually stuck and what didn't stick from her lesson. And then she graded the work. There was a math teacher, middle school math teacher, who said, I gave students and in test, all of the problems had been worked out. They were all finished. Someone had finished the test and I gave it to students. And I said, you have to go back through here and you have to see if you agree with the answers. And if you don't agree, you have to show me which step was wrong and why that person might have made that error. What was the thinking that made that error? And then the teacher said, on different versions of the test, the errors were different. Where the error was made was different. So they tried to share with each other. It was super obvious because that's not the error on that, that version. <laughs> and so I just kept thinking about that. Doing a worked example where a kid has to go through the thinking of someone else to say, oh, I see where this person made a mistake. Here's probably why that person made a mistake is a whole nother level of thinking of mathematics than being able to solve problems. So I think we're gonna see all kinds of creativity in how teachers create assessments because it's part of our job. We can't neglect this part of our job. We are responsible for determining, did students learn things? Because we're gonna do report cards and grades and things like that. But we have to change how we assess performance. And if, you, if it's an open book, think, fantastic. You know, there's a lot of college classes that say, you have to do this. You can use any source you want, but you have to do this. And, and if that's the intent, great. But then don't wait, they quote, cheated on it. I do think we should also use some text matching software, you know, whether it's Google or Turnitin or whatever, because students need to know that there are systems that notice uh, inappropriate use of others' work or lack of attribution of that work. And so I think we should probably step up our text matching software a little bit to make sure that students know that that's possible because they're going to get in trouble in college if they overuse primary, other people's sources. Yeah, and that's just a, a beautiful teachable moment too. Because um, sometimes I, you know, as a former English teacher myself, I know that they just 
They do that uh, a little bit as a crutch, I guess. Not not necessarily unknowingly, but but maybe the <laughs> they don't get the balance right with that sometimes. And so it's great to think through that. And I love that math idea. Uh, and I also think too that that just speaks to the potential that the present practices will have when you get back in person. Because I, I think being able to have those types of problems on a, a test is a valid means of assessment and is creative and something I have not heard of before. Uh, and so it's interesting to think about, uh, back to our initial point, the ways in which this is going to push us to be better upon the full return when that time comes around. And so, yep. gosh, you know, half an hour goes really quick. I say it almost every podcast. <laughs> That's kind of where we're at right now. And so yeah. Uh, I do want to thank you because I, I recognize that there are just so many needs out there. I think we've talked to some of those, certainly given examples that I, I will hopefully stretch our audience's thinking a little bit around this work uh, and, and being invested in the distance learning playbook. So check it out. Uh, it is certainly a, a great resource that you've created for all of us to learn from. And we're grateful for that. I always like to kind of close out the pod by asking if there's just any sort of parting message that you might have uh, for educators in this moment or, or just kind of a, a yeah, piece of advice really as they look to evolve their practices, I think, over the course of this semester and beyond with this work. I would say, don't be so enamored with the tools. Your students will be fine if you don't fill in the blank, Kahoot, Desmos. I don't want to pick on any one tool. I don't mean that. Use a tool that works for you. Don't make that the thing. Don't compare yourself to other people. Approach the world with some confidence. Say to yourself every day, I got this. There were bumps in the road last year and the year before and the year before. There have been bumps in my teaching career every year. This year's bumps are a little bit different, but our superpower is that we know how to develop relationships with young people and design learning experiences to get them to learn. When history tells this time, one of the heroes, of course, healthcare workers, of course, scientists, but one of the heroes will be the teachers because we did what we could with what we have to make sure kids continue to learn. And if we hold that, we did what we could with what we have to get kids to learn. Uh, and to connect with them too. And I love it. Yeah, the relationship piece uh, built in there. And so, uh, Doug, thank you so very much for advocating uh, for all this and helping us out during this time. Uh, and I am just so excited for our ESU network to come together over the course of now, really through December 22nd. Uh, every other week, we're going to be having conversations uh, about how to continue to move with this work as it evolves. And really, that's being brought about as a result of your book and your leadership. So thanks. And hopefully we'll get a chance to visit with you again Thank sometime you. soon.